My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Colombians are always, have always remained kind of optimistic, uh, <laughs> even in the depths of this war. I think it's partly because we're a little delusional, <laughs> maybe as a society. Uh, also because we live in a really incredible place and, and our culture is very vibrant, um, despite adversity. David Restrepo grew up during the most violent period of Colombia's history. I was growing up first in Medellin during the Pablo Escobar years and then in Cali during the Cali cartel years. It was the 80s and 90s. The country was in the midst of a civil war. The government was also fighting the drug cartels and the cartels themselves were at war with each other. There were bombs going off on a weekly basis. There were kidnappings, there were mass kidnappings, some of them happening. One of the major ones happened you know, maybe three blocks away from where I went to school. The whole like regional Congress <laughs> was abducted by guerrillas at the middle of the day. And then on a more personal level, like all around us, there were people who were involved in this economy but you didn't really fully know, but you sort of really did know. And then the mentality that people need to adopt to be able to survive in that industry kind of leads to violence becoming pervasive. I think we all, most Colombians have (laughs) pretty harrowing stories about what that meant for them in their personal lives. And many of us uh, had to flee because staying meant that we we would die or something nasty would happen to a family member. My family was not immune to that either, and that was one of the reasons I had to leave, because of the violence that was going on around me. Around 260,000 people were killed over six decades, and millions were forced out of their homes. David's family left in 2002 and came back in 2016. That's when the government signed a peace deal with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia the Marxist guerrilla group also known as FARC, and ended the civil war. The war had been going on since the 60s. In the beginning, it was between the Colombian government and far-left guerrilla groups like FARC, who were fighting for more rights for farmers and more control of the land. Partly inspired by the Cuban Revolution, the FARC say they represent the rights of the rural poor. But it evolved into a really complex conflict. Right-wing paramilitary groups got involved, and so did the U.S. government. The U.S. gave Colombia billions of dollars to fight both the insurgency and the drug trade that was funding the conflict on both sides. The FARC became embroiled in the drugs trade, financing its relentless war through cocaine. Meanwhile, billions of American dollars were poured in through Plan Colombia to bolster the military. And the hope was that with the 2016 deal, people in Colombia would finally get to live in peace. 
But now there are parts of the country, especially rural areas that are controlled by armed groups and where the drug economy is still thriving, where it's like the peace deal never even happened. Just last Saturday, close to the Ecuador border, at least 18 people died fighting over drug trafficking routes. They were part of two rival guerrilla groups called the Border Commandos and the Southwestern Bloc. Both of them are mostly made up of former FARC members who rejected the 2016 peace deal. And when it was all over, locals had to go around and collect the corpses because the police never showed up. Incidents like these are why the new president, Gustavo Petros, made it a priority to end all of this violence. He's promised total peace in Colombia, and he's already started negotiations on how that would work. David's been following all of this closely. He's the director of research at the Center for Studies on Security and Drugs at the University of the Andes in Bogota. And this week on the show, he's going to help us understand Gustavo Petro's plans to bring peace to Colombia, how they're different from the many ways the country's tried to end the violence in the past, and why he thinks Canada and the U.S. have a crucial role to play. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Before we get to Petro's plan, just a quick recap of how we got to this point. As part of the 2016 peace deal, FARC agreed to lay down their arms in exchange for the government bringing in reforms that would improve the lives of rural Colombians. So things like education, access to drinking water, and helping farmers get out of the coca trade through a crop substitution program. But a lot of that hasn't happened. The previous government of Ivan Duque has been accused of basically abandoning the process of implementing the peace deal, of not bringing in the reforms quickly enough and leaving farmers to fend for themselves. And the result of that was that uh, when the FARC demobilized, many new groups basically filled the vacuum and there was an uptick in the violence, particularly in rural areas and those areas that grow coca for illicit cocaine trafficking. Historically, the victims of this war are rural areas, ethnic communities, both Afro-Colombian and indigenous, social leaders in those communities. Colombia, 2021. Already proving to be its most violent year since the 2016 peace agreement between the government and guerrilla group FARC. According to Colombia's special investigator for crimes committed during this period, there's been a murder every four days in the month of January, mostly including social leaders, activists and former guerrillas. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we move on to the actual plan um, is the state of the cocaine trade itself. Um, from what I've read, it's very much thriving, right? Like the country yeah, is says. pumping out more coke than ever before. It's the highest uh, level in history. Record. Colombia harvested some 204,000 hectares of the plant last year. That's a 43% increase, according to the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. It's also the highest figure since the body started monitoring Colombia's cocaine production in 2001.
So there's all this violence that's still happening in parts of the country, and Petro says he wants to fix all of that with this plan for total peace. And what are sort of the bullet points of this plan? The main point is that there's going to be negotiation with all of the armed groups that have emerged um, or that have remained, the ELN being the main one that remains. This is the ELN. It's a leftist anti-government group that is made up of more than 2,000 fighters plus militias based in the Colombian countryside. The group is a holdout in the country's peace process and is considered a terrorist organization by Colombia and several other governments, including the United States and the European Union. And that negotiation involves transitional justice, it involves some sort of of reparation models so that these uh, criminal actors essentially uh, pay for their crimes but are able to also keep some of their, their assets. And in addition to that, new uh, drug control uh, framework that hopefully works towards uh, ending the illicit market in drugs and international negotiations to make that uh, market uh, possible uh, at some stage because Colombia's uh, local drug market is very, very small in comparison to its export market. Right, of course. And then and then the last piece is trying to revive the, the coca substitution program, which was part of the 2016 peace deal. Yes, yeah. So I guess I lumped that all into the, the alternative drug control model. But, but yes, that's a, an important kind of highlight within that. So I want to drill down on each of these things, with the first being the negotiations with these armed groups. So part of the issue with the 2016 peace deal, from what I understand, is that there are FARC members who resisted the deal. They've rearmed or they've joined the drug trade. So I'm wondering, this time around, with these negotiations, how would the government handle people who refuse to cooperate? I don't think that there are clear answers to that. The, the FARC dissidents and generally the armed groups are, are participating in the drug trade. Firstly, it's not that they've joined the drug trade. Many of them were already participating in the drug trade. But I think we need to understand that participating in the drug trade is not like uh, joining a startup. It's a qualitatively different situation for a lot of people. It can be a life and death situation as well. It can be that the only way for you to have enough power and security to survive in a hostile environment is to be part of that industry. The only way that you can maybe, as a young man, <laughs> um, hold your own in a community is if you participate in the only economy that there is in town. So I think what I'm gathering from the way that the government is progressing with this is that um, there's kind of an acceptance of this um, legacy of, of dysfunction and of violence. And so let's bring everybody to the table because everybody has some, some legitimate reason <laughs> uh, to be participating in that conflict. But that's why also part of the strategy is to uh, push for a different kind of drug control model. And if we don't start, if Colombia does not start, Nobody else will, because nobody is suffering to the extent that we are. We're also a country that has just recently recognized 
that we are suffering from collective PTSD. And we primarily because we have not been able to talk about what's been going down here. And I think the government understands that it's going to be hard in four years to um, solve <laughs> the transition from prohibition to a regulated uh, system, which is a key element of total peace in Colombia. But we need to start somewhere. The government's already started negotiations this week with ELN, which is believed to have around 4,000 fighters in Colombia. The Guardian reported this week that its leaders say the group is united, but it's not clear how much sway the much older negotiators have over the group's younger, active fighters. The last time the government was in talks with ELN, they were canceled after the group killed 22 police cadets in a car bombing. This was the scene after an attack at a police academy in the south of Bogota on Thursday. The car rammed through the school's security checks at around 9.30am local time before exploding in the parking lot. It makes me sad that this is happening in my country because it hasn't happened for a long time. I live near the police school and the blast was very strong. I thought a car had hit my house. What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Petro has said that he wants to rekindle the crop substitution program, which is part of this peace plan. It was also part of the 2016 peace deal. And so the idea there was to sort of help farmers get out of growing coca and give them incentives to grow other kinds of crops like coffee, for example, and also give them subsidies to help them transition out of growing coca. And I know over 100,000 families signed up, but the Duque administration kind of abandoned the program and it was seen widely as a failure, right? And I wonder if you can just explain what happened there and why that is. Well, I think that the, the Duke administration didn't abandon the program officially, but it defunded uh, the program and it also did not pursue the enormous amount of financial support that is needed internationally to ensure that not just the 100,000 families, but, you know, we're talking about between two and 300,000 families who are participating in the cultivation aspect of the illicit economy. So uh, Duque just kind of let it fail <laughs> and kind of hastened it. But um, the, the current administration is saying, well, actually, what was agreed with the FARC and all of those institutions that were developed, actually, they, they were onto something. And let's uh, get the international community to uh, pitch into this. <laughs> Do we know much about how this time 
would be different from what was in the peace plan in 2016? Like, how, how would this government go about it differently? I think one of the things that was considered problematic about the previous approach was the use of handouts to specific families for crop substitution. Not because that didn't work. In fact, there has been really good success in terms of people who signed up to the program honoring their side of the equation. The government didn't, though. The government gave cash, but there was a bunch of other things that they were meant to do, like offer technical assistance to actually ensure a route to market for these products, you know, infrastructure investments, et cetera. Those were not done. So that might end up being the approach that's still in the works. It hasn't been defined yet. The government wants farmers to grow commercial crops like coffee, but low prices and high costs of transporting goods to market on terrible sometimes impassable roads, means farmers like Obdulio Sanchez earn far too little. If the price of coffee doesn't improve, the small farmers won't have any option but to grow illegal crops. So there still aren't a lot of details on how the new version of the crop substitution program would work. But the head of Petro's transition team on drug policy told Foreign Policy magazine that the team is recommending a gradual rather than abrupt eradication of coca and that the emphasis has to be on giving technical assistance to farmers and finding groundbreaking projects for them. For example, they've already identified crops that could actually be profitable enough to replace coca. Things like oyster mushrooms, essential oil crops, and cannabis, which is close to being legalized in Colombia. But if you ask David, crop substitution on its own isn't enough. It's not about switching crops. It's about transforming economies as a whole. And, And ultimately, that's still a dead end because... You can substitute as many crops as you want. If there's still going to be a demand for cocaine or for heroin or other opiates, the best example of crop substitution is Thailand. They were great at getting rid of their crops, but they all ended up in Myanmar and in Afghanistan and have not aided either of those countries in their process of becoming peaceful, functioning uh, places. And yes, there's so many different crops that are actually close in terms of their economic value to coca. But the incentives are not there because people don't have, uh, you know, formal ownership of their land, because the access to urban centers is complicated, because the financial resources available aren't there. There are a number of of things that can be done to address that issue. I think cannabis as a crop substitution opportunity is maybe a little bit complicated because right now what we're facing in Colombia, as well as much of the world, is an oversupply of cannabis. So I don't know if that will be an answer, and there's and we're still a ways off. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, there are experts, and there have been like op-eds written about this, uh, people who say Colombia should fully legalize cocaine and mm-hmm. that this just makes sense considering sort of the nature of the drug market, there's always going to be mm-hmm. demand for this drug. Uh, legalization would bring the production and distribution process out into the open. And as a result, the violence would end. Um, and I know Petro's administration has already said that they won't do that. And mm-hmm. why do you think that is? 
because of U.S. pressure. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I mean, mm-hmm. there is a clear before and after the U.S. intervening on the issue. Like uh, during the handover months, there was a lot more um, determination, a, a lot stronger, bolder language to go down that route. But I think the U.S. thought that they weren't going to be party to that. And because we have such a close relationship with the United States, so many uh, economic interests in that relationship, it seemed like it was a bit too far too soon for Colombia to go down that route. I also think that you know, my point of view is not a common one in Colombia. I think Colombia overall, the, the median voter, is a lot more conservative on the issue of drug policy. And so it was also probably not politically expedient for Petro to go all that way yet. Um, and cannabis, which is the, you know, kind of the test market, is not delivering results for anybody. So I think that there is a little bit of a, of a legitimacy gap in that proposal that we're going to need to resolve via cannabis, maybe coca leaf rather than just cocaine, <laughs> before there's maybe sufficient excitement with the idea of going further. Do you think part of the public's opposition to legalizing cocaine has to do with, I guess, the country's history and like the collective sort of PTSD that you mentioned before? Like, is that why people may be reluctant or really opposed to this idea of fully legalizing? I think Colombians are pretty conventional with this issue. I think people are afraid of drugs. We are afraid of drugs because we probably have relatives or friends who have had a problem with drugs. And there is this idea that if we have kept those those substances away that, you know, our loved ones would be okay. (laughs) Um, We don't want to give individuals kind of responsibility for what has happened in their lives. I think that's just a common, you know, there's just a common stigma around the issue of drugs, which in Colombia in particular has been exploited to basically turn our country into a great dumping ground for imported chemicals like glyphosate, as well as a great opportunity for security contracts uh, for weapons and um, helicopters and so on. So Petro has said that there needs to be international acceptance that the war on drugs has failed. And Colombia's biggest partner in the war on drugs, of course, has been the United States, which is also the largest consumer of cocaine in the world. Canada, obviously, there's also like a large cocaine consuming population here. Um, But the U.S. has pumped billions of dollars into Colombia on security aid, um, programs to destroy coca crops through aerial fumigation. And the U.S. has obviously never really approached fighting the drug trade in the way that Petro is proposing. So what challenges do you think that presents um, ultimately for this government if they want to implement this, uh, this peace plan? Well, I think that the Biden administration has has demonstrated a very different discourse in terms of drug policy uh, at, at domestic level. <laughs> There's a lot of more talk around harm reduction. Uh, internationally, though, in, in, in policy in general, have a lot of momentum, have a lot of inertia. 
And so unless there's somebody making a deliberate effort to change the status quo, things are just going to continue as before. That business model is not going to go away as long as places like Canada remain prohibitionist countries where cocaine, even though a bigger percentage of your population than Colombia consumes cocaine, by a long stretch, in fact, as long as your population continues to accept prohibition as the model for drug control. Because that's what enables the profiteering in this industry and what keeps criminal groups in the business. Aside from the United States, what else do you think would need to happen outside of Colombia in order for Petro to really be able to make headway on these plans? Like, are there other actors that we aren't thinking about? There is an unprecedented moment in Latin America where all of the major Latin American countries have voted for the left. And there is not a shared, but there is some common views around the need for a new kind of drug policy. And I think for Cocali, for instance, there has been a proposal from Bolivia for a while of rescheduling Cocalif. Cocalif is a very benign plant with far fewer public health concerns than cannabis. And it's, it's treated as a Schedule One drug by <laughs> the majority of the world. And so that's not right. That had, you know, that's not based on evidence and on science. And uh, the WHO should help us reclassify Cocalif. So that's something that could be done multilaterally. A lot more coordination could happen within Latin America on on a different security approach, and and potentially with a joint coalition at the international level, we could also start discussing more humane and uh, reasonable ways of dealing with cocaine. Um, so that could be an avenue for, for that issue to be addressed as well. I remember when I was reading about this before the election, there were some experts who are making a lot of sort of doomsday predictions and saying this administration, it's like the key to finding a lasting peace in Colombia and the window for this is closing. And if whoever the next president is doesn't manage to do this, then we're we're really screwed. Do you think about it in, in those terms? Like, is the window closing? What are the stakes? I mean, Colombia has just gone through a major political change Colombia had never mm-hmm. voted for uh, a lefty president. <laughs> you know, right. we were the most conservative Latin American country in terms of who we voted for. And that change happened and it kind of took people by surprise. Um, so I think the way to look at it is we have this enormous opportunity to deal with some of our biggest problems and we shouldn't waste it. I think it's a better attitude. Like, we shouldn't waste that opportunity. We should also feel a bit proud that despite being a country at war forever, that our democracy remains sufficiently resilient (laughs) and maybe has even become more resilient because we're so stubborn in our desire to continue living and having a good life (laughs) in the midst of all this. We're much more democratic than we thought. And our institutions are a lot stronger than we thought. And we have all this opportunity. We should just seize it because this is a fabulous, magical country. It is like an extraordinary place. And we could live very well here. And there's no reason we we shouldn't be. Okay, uh, David, thank you so much for this conversation. Super, super interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tamara. 
right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.